And it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, back with another hour of must-see radio. Our subject today, what's in a face? What is it we do when we look at another person's face? Well, admit it, sometimes at least we're sizing them up. Their beauty, their attractiveness, their character, their intentions. Maybe we imagine we can see clear down to their soul. Well, that is an awful lot to read into a few square inches of flesh and features, and we forget that face is surface, facade, and that it's as much a product of accident and happenstance as any other part of the body, or a coat of paint for that matter. Well, in this hour, I'll talk to three people who know well the distinction between the mask and the person inside. All had their faces altered radically by circumstances, medical conditions, injuries, surgery, and they learned how much appearances matter or don't in the scheme of things. Stay tuned. First up today, David Roach. He's an inspirational speaker, humorist, and writer, and much of his material deals with his physical appearance. He grew up severely disfigured, both by a congenital facial condition and by the medical attempts to repair it. He describes the challenges and lessons of looking different in his book, The Church of 80% Sincerity. David, welcome. Thank you, Robert. I want to start with a question that you actually prompt people to ask you. Mm-hmm. What happened to your face? Ooh. What happened to my face? When I was a year old, the whole bottom part of my face exploded, not exploded, it became engorged with distended, bulging veins so that uh, the whole chin area looked like a bunch of grapes. And, of course, uh, my parents were scared. They took me to, I ended up at the Mayo Clinic. I had the whole lower part of my lower lip, and this whole area was cut off. And um, I had many other procedures, surgeries, uh, therapies, including heavy radiation therapy. That meant the whole lower part of my face stopped going. I lost all my teeth. And... um, I've had various other things happen to my face along the way, medical interventions. So you see, what you see on my face is made by God and honed by man. (laughs) But actually, I'm cute, too. I want to claim that, you know. I work at it. Now, I'm I'm laughing um, just because I think there's a a, a sense of humor in your presentation uh, of yourself, uh, both in your book and, I guess, on stage. I haven't seen you on stage. Uh But you do say, you know, to people, why don't you just ask me what happened to my face? Yeah. Uh, And and I say, I'll count to three. And then, you know, like a thousand people say, what happened to your face? And, And they're so eager to say it. It's amazing. It's like the best audience participation you're ever going to get. And the tension probably goes out of the room when that happens. Yeah, yeah, because it's acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. It's great. How much of your life did you spend before you started bringing it up? Um, about 45 years. And, uh, you know, the key was, you know, what happened at age 45? Well, number one, I quit drinking. And that had been like my accommodation of choice that kind of blunted my creativity, my fears, my doubts, and I uh, kind of uh, I stumbled into a, uh, a comedy class taught by this guy, Lee Glickstein, 
in San Francisco, and um, he basically helped me to discover myself. Because uh, he said, don't tell jokes, just tell the truth about your life. That's what's funny. And what well, you know, it is. And that's my style. So I just tell reality, you know. And, uh, and uh, within three months, I had my first gig. And I thought I was king of the world. So the comedy advice in this workshop you took was just to tell the truth, not to actually make jokes at all? Well, a few jokes slip in, you know, I talk about, you know, being raised Catholic and some of the difficulties, uh, you know, and I say like I'm an incense survivor, you know, which is like the only pun I use and it really doesn't even fit, but I can't resist it. But usually it's all stories. Um, well, let, let's, um, let's share some stories then. Um, first of all, your childhood. So, so you had this condition, and this happened from. This is basically from birth. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So you had to deal with it your your entire life, mm-hmm. um, and I think a lot of people would assume that uh, that would have led to a really, really difficult childhood. You know, I think of my childhood in my recollection, up until like middle school, seventh, eighth grade, as being very happy. I I was safe. I had a, a loving family. I had six brothers and sisters, I was in the same neighborhood, you know, you go outside, you play, you play ball. And um, that's what I did. And uh, once, you know, I was aware that I was different, so it wasn't like there was never teasing, but um, the teasing was discouraged because you were accepted. So the famous cruelty of children really didn't happen so much to you? No, it didn't, although I, I will say I hear so many stories about it, about uh, from parents of kids with facial differences that uh, the kids get really taunted and, and suffer a lot. Uh, I do know other children, other people, other adults who have the similar kind of recollections as me that it wasn't bad, but where it got difficult, of course, is in middle school. It's also part of growing up, too, an unfortunate part, you know. The kids, I'm realizing, they don't have any understanding of self-worth. You know, it's like all of a sudden, you come to age, well, in in my youth, it was probably age 12. Now it's probably down to about age 10. And you're, you're in a world where your parents, hopefully, are supporting you. And you have a good, strong sense of yourself, like... I would say I thought I was a child of God, a person of value. Now all of a sudden, you're in a world where, you know, it's your shoes or your backpack or, you know, uh, your hair or your parents' car or where you live that, uh, you know, your nose, your butt. I'm not speaking to you personally, Robert. <laughs> I, um, I remember my daughter when she was 11 coming home from school and saying, Dad, is my butt too big? And I thought, oh, no, here it goes, you know. I asked her about it a few months ago, and she said, yeah, that stuck with her, still stuck with her. You know, that's like big scar, you know. And, um, you know, so she's always had a very high butt consciousness ever <laughs> since then. I shouldn't laugh. I mean, you're talking about adolescence when people become, most of us, I think, become, you know, acutely self-conscious. Everything that could be perceived as a flaw is by uh-huh. oneself and others. 
And so you had the extra, you know, on top of all the other things that everybody was sort of poking fun at and ridiculing each other about, you had the facial difference that we're yeah. talking mm-hmm. about. So how did that go? You know, I, I got into a safe place. I was turned away by the Holy Cross seminary. They told me I was too ugly to be a priest, the Holy Cross priest at Notre Dame. But I went to a different seminary. Let, let's stop there, because I really want to talk about that incident. You were so, how old? You wanted to get into 13. seminary. I was 13. You I wanted to be a, a priest and mm, study in the I seminary. I was a spiritual little guy. You know, I'm the oldest of seven kids in an Irish Catholic family. Hello? It's time to be a priest, you know, and I was smart, and uh, and uh, I, I, I'm sure that I also thought it might be appropriate for me because I was disfigured, but that surely wasn't a really conscious thought, um, and so I went for an interview uh, at the University of Notre Dame, the Holy Cross Seminary, and... Um, the priests uh, interviewed me, and I told them how much I loved Jesus and how um, Father Alvin and Sister Frida had encouraged me, and indeed they had in many ways. And they uh, said, we're sorry, but uh, you're too ugly to be a priest. They said it in those words? What they said was, we believe that because of your appearance, David, the prisoners would not have respect for you. And we uh, would not accept you. The, at the parishioners seminary. would not have respect for you. Yes, but what I heard was that the other extreme was this was God talking for a little Catholic boy. A priest is talking. That's the word of God, and it was God telling me that um, I was a monster, and that that came out of the blue because I, I would, you know, I- at home, like I say, the priests and nuns were highly supportive and. I, I was just like stunned, and uh, yeah. Um, I don't even know what to say about that. Um, what did that? What did that do to your feelings about God, who you believed in devoutly, who you prayed to, about the church that you were quite devoted to? These priests telling you that you were, you know, in so many words, too ugly to be, you know, part of the clergy. Uh-huh. I took it inside myself in everything that I had believed about myself, about being valued, being a child of God, it just crumbled. And I didn't talk about it. I, I just shut it up and, and never talked about it. Um, and that's kind of the price you pay for being in the generation of denial and being told, you just go ahead, you do what you have to do. Um, so uh, I, I definitely, definitely, even though I went to a different seminary, there was something that was different from that time on. And, uh, you know, you talk about being told in middle school that you uh, aren't acceptable because your shoes are uh, the wrong color. Well, you're told that, you know, you're worthless and not acceptable uh, by a God's representative. Had these priests read the Bible? Well, if they read the Bible, they might have read the book of Leviticus, which talks about how you have to be uh, dressed in a certain way to be a priest and approach the altar of the Lord. And then it also goes on about physical qualifications. It's something like, he that if lame or hath a wandering eye shall not approach the altar of the Lord. So there's a a history to it, too. It's Mm. uh, 
It's a, a strong Judeo-Christian heritage. I do, should point out that um, it's changed. It's changed in the Catholic Church. It's changed, and in many ways, uh, the Church, the Catholics, and uh, and other religious denominations, denominations, are in the forefront uh, in many ways of disability rights. So it's not just a one-sided story. Mm. Mm. However, I still hate Notre Dame. <laughs> And I am not alone. I am not alone. <laughs> well, this was when you were 13. So this is, you know, the beginning of your teens. And then there's the cruelties of middle school. And then there's that um, topic that's sensitive for everybody at that age, relationships. Mm-hmm. So Are you talking about masturbation? <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about girls. Um, so There were no girls in the seminary that I went to. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that was safe. Well, when did dating come up for you then? Um, at the end of college and uh, heading into young adulthood. You know, I kind of fumbled my way forward there. You know, and here's the story. I married the first woman I had sex with. Okay, this is a Catholic, good Catholic boy. You have sex with someone? <laughs> you know what you're supposed to do, Robert. You know. Well, I'm not Catholic. I have no idea. No, so you, yeah, God knows what you do. But when you're a good Catholic, you marry them. And, uh, you know, we didn't have much in common except sex. Uh, and um, she was a fine person, you know, but that was definitely a starter marriage. And you're not supposed to learn about relationships in that way by marrying someone, but that was the way I learned. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, before we go on, I want to ask you about terminology. You use the, the phrase facial difference. Mm-hmm. And you use the you also use the term disfigured. Mm-hmm. I think in some of your writings. Yes. How do you feel about that word disfigured to describe a, a face like yours or other faces? Well, if you want to be politically correct, the the new uh, politically correct term is appearance impaired, which it doesn't seem really attractive to me. I, I it's not my first choice. Facial difference is kind of like the kind of the common. Uh, a phrase. Uh, disfigurement, I tend to use that more because I feel like it's more, well, in your face and uh, right out there. Um, and I think I am more disfigured than facially different. Now, when you say you're more disfigured than facially different, what do you mean? I'm really disfigured. I'm not just like have like a crooked nose or some boring difference. I'm really disfigured. You know, I, and from certain angles, I look grotesque, you know, so there's no denying it. And I want to let listeners know that this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and I'm speaking with the writer and performer David Roach about living with facial deformity. David was born with a condition known as a vascular malformation. And in this next segment of the interview, I asked him about the various responses that people have to his face. You describe... Um, uh, people's initial reactions, and you say um, there's fear. That, yeah. That you stir up four different kinds of fear. There's the the, the fear of doing the right thing, of, of following the proper etiquette. Um, mm-hmm. How should I behave toward this person yeah. who looks mm-hmm. different? Then there's the fear of disease, of contagion. Like uh-huh. maybe you have something that's catching, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> and then there's the fear of violence. What's that one? Well, if you think of how disfigured people are portrayed in fiction and in the movies, 
usually we have a chainsaw or an axe or something like that, or we like to bite people and gnaw on them or strangle them. Uh, we want revenge uh, in some way. You mean you know the Phantom of the Opera, the Friday the Thirteenth, the Halloween, you know, on and Nightmare on. on Elm Street. Yeah, F- facial yeah. deformity is the sign of a monster, of a bad guy. Mostly, that's the way it's portrayed. So that you know what's stuck in uh, people's unconscious is someone who looks disfigured is maybe somebody who's going to be violent. Hmm. And finally, the root fear that they themselves are disfigured. Yeah, I I think my belief, from my experience of being a performer for going on twenty years now, people tend to confide in me because they think I will have some understanding of the human condition, and in in some ways I do, and. Um, I've come to understand that everybody feels disfigured. Maybe that's too strong of a word. Everybody feels unworthy. Everybody feels that they're a fraud. Everybody feels uh, that um, they don't measure up. It takes all kinds of forms, and of course, a lot in uh, here in the United States and here in California, it, it tends to focus on appearance, you know, it can be other things, athletic ability, money, power, you know, all kinds of stuff. But everybody feels disfigured. I want to read a, a passage from your book, in fact, that uh, relates to some of this. You say, um, I know now that my face does not belong to me. It belongs in a catalog of symbols. The face is often falsely seen as the locus of the human persona, When it is scarred, it becomes a reminder that the entire human experience is one of being flawed. It is not the fact of my disfigurement that wears on my psyche. It is the fear and self-doubt of others, their very human concern about their own social acceptability, their worry about being unlovable and abandoned. There you go. He says it very well, doesn't he? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're in this position of getting to... um, Maybe learn more than most of us do about how people function, at mm-hmm. least in regard to appearance. Yeah. I mean, you're in a great position to observe human beings. There's this double-take phenomenon, the various ways people treat you when they first meet you. Mm-hmm. And you get insights into people, and then they also come to you and tell you stories about themselves. They think you're safe. Well, you know, the truth is, I, I through struggle and so on, I've... I have come to mostly accept myself and have a strong sense of myself. My God, the fact that I get on stage in front of a thousand people and do a one-man show for an hour and ten minutes all by myself, you got to have something going to do that. Um, I have come to accept myself. And, well, I think, uh, to use another biblical reference, as Jesus says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself— I do think that there is a way in which you do have to love yourself in order to love other people. And because I accept myself as flawed, it it really has helped me um, to see other people as human beings and to not expect 100% sincerity. (laughs) 80%. 80%. And that's pretty high, actually. That's the title of your book. Tell us more about this, The Church of 80% Sincerity. The truth is, okay, 
my wife, Marlena, is uh, a nutritionist, and she has this idea that she hel- she helps people. She counsels them, and uh, she has like this 80% thing where 80% of the time you eat well and 20% of the time you can have Haagen-Dazs. <laughs> um, so I stole the idea from my <laughs> wife. Is the uh, Church of 80% Sincerity was born in sin. <laughs> By the way, we should say that Marlena, your, your current wife, is not the first woman you had sex with. No. She's your second wife. She's the last woman I had sex with. So. <laughs> In, in most, silly say, most recent. <laughs> we keep reverting to uh, uh, references to church and to the Bible. Um, and I wanted to get back to something, you know, that I touched on earlier, which is after that rejection by the priests at the seminary, at Holy Cross Seminary, um, and also after having prayed as a kid for some miracle, maybe you'd wake up someday and be, you know, look different, look uh-huh. like an average person. Um None of that happened. The clergy gave you this bum's rush, you know. Did you lose your faith? Did you did you dislike the church? I mean, you sound like you still are a believer. It's it's interesting. I I no, I don't call myself Catholic, um, but you know, uh, someone asked me uh, not long ago, do I still follow Catholicism? I said no, but Catholicism follows me. You know, you you don't lose that when you have that, like, really entrenched upbringing. And I see ways that um, surprise me. I try to find uh, my own spirituality, and I realized I need to be around nature. I need to have good relationships, and I need to be creative. Mm. Now, I realize that. There's the three ways that I experience what? The sacred, the divine, God, and that's the Trinity. Um, You know, nature, God the Father, the Creator. Relationship, Jesus, love one another. Creativity, the Holy Spirit, inspiration. So, am I still Catholic? Um, You know, I think uh, probably the answer is uh, still to be revealed. Mm. We don't know. Mm. Well, one one element of Catholic doctrine, of course, is original sin, that we're all born very deeply flawed, and we're only perfected <laughs> after death, you know, <laughs> or when the world is redeemed. And so that, that fits kind of nicely with your idea that um, nearly everybody or everybody uh, who talks to you talks about their own sense of disfigurement in mm-hmm. some way or other, you know. Yeah. Well, I think that um, it does fit nicely, and I think that the the doctrine of original sin, uh, and it's not just in the West because I think that that uh, you know the, uh, you find an Eastern iteration of that in the idea of karma, where you know something you did in a past life has caused you to well to be disfigured or something your parents you know whatever kind of thing, uh, and there's caste in in India that people uh, all kinds of uh, of reasons to explain this. Uh, sort of thing, it's gotten reified. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, original sin is one example of it. And of course, the idea of original sin wasn't even thought of until the fourth century by St. Augustine, who came up with many other ideas too. They're all good. But original <laughs> sin, and yet he believed that original sin was passed on through semen. 
Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> oh, I, I haven't read my Augustine. Uh, no, you're not to that, that. To yeah. that level. No, I haven't. Yeah, well, Dr. Luth says the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> we, we talked about how your childhood wasn't so bad uh, and, and that kids weren't so um, cruel to you. But um, in some of the accounts in your book, um, it was shocking how cruel some adults were. At times, yeah. There's this incident that happened on Market Street in San Francisco. Oh, yeah, yeah, Tell that was probably the, the most shocking. Um, I was coming up out of the uh, BART station, uh, right by UN Plaza, uh, you know, nice sunny day, and uh, I'm on my way to work, and I see, you know, how everybody's kind of trotting along in the morning, and I, was, I see someone stopping in front of me, and it's weird because I'm, I've just gotten off the up escalator, and I look up, and there's this handsome man, a black man. He looked very good-looking, dressed really nicely, and he spit in my face. And he said, you're the ugliest thing I've ever seen. This guy just walks up to you and spits in your face. Yeah, uh-huh. And then he just walks on. And I'm like, um, And amazingly enough, I was able to turn around with the saliva dripping down and say, you're ugly in your heart, which I felt really proud of. And um, luckily I had a friend visiting, an old friend from when I was 13, who was a psychologist. And I, I got home uh, after work, you know, I kind of sat on this incident all day um, and talked to Art about it. And uh, he talked about how that was an expression of his own, this guy's own sense of ugliness, you know, and then maybe it had to do with, you know, racism, you know, all kinds of things like that. And because um, my friend also was black too, art, and um, you know that that was kind of a, a, actually a turning point for me uh, to realize that and, and to be able to say something like that under those circumstances. But yeah, it's definitely shocking. It was hard to read about. I read it in your book, and it was really People hard. People don't like to hear that story. Uh, it's painful. Um, yeah. and, and how is it for you to write about it or talk about it? I have some distance now. You know, I processed it, too. Um, yeah, there, there are other, other things that I uh, tell about. You know, uh, I tell a story about, uh, I think it was seventh grade, and the spin the bottle story, and... Um, Patty uh, rejecting me when the bottle pointed at me and stuff. That's a different kind of story. The hottest girl in the, in the school. I, I can still see her. I can still see her. <laughs> and she said, yuck, when the bottle pointed at you. I, I think she said, yuck. But that's a universal story because everybody has had the experience of walking into a room and uh, feeling different. And if you haven't had that feeling, then you've had it in your dreams you know, so that people can relate to the spin the bottle story because rejected as a 12-year-old, hello, you know, join the, join the rejection club. Um, but uh, having, being spit, uh, having someone spit in your face, uh, that's, uh, that's really shocking to people. Mm. That and, and uh, being rejected by the priests. Mm. People are, did that really happen? Well, yeah, it did, you know. What do you look for in a face? You know, that's a that's a great question. I like a good face. 
um, I like like presence. It, it's sort of like non-physical qualities, but they're manifested physically. Um, a face with character, I like, um, and 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 I like an attractive, you know, symmetrical face in that. But I don't, I don't like a face that looks uh, plasticized. Um, the, the Botox faces, those are the ones that scare me for sure. And you know what else scares me is like really white teeth. <laughs> I, I live in Mill Valley, you know. It's like even the dogs have white teeth, you know. God, it's like it's like being in a Twilight Zone episode. Um, that scares me, you know. You know, I, I have a lot not now. I start on my judgmental side. <laughs> Well, David, this, just to prove this is not a softball interview, <laughs> are, are you a hypocrite? Do you judge people on their appearances? I find that I do that, mm. yeah. I, I judge all kinds of stuff. You know, mm. I'm, I have this like severely, I, I exist along this continuum that's from very, very warm and nurturing to hypercritical, you know, I, and, and kind of the, the, the engine that moves the needle on the dial is probably fear and self-doubt, mm. you know? Mm. So, like, I, I'm, like, judgmental of wildflowers, you know? <laughs> I do want to say, probably, you know, you're getting a little aggressive, you know, kind of late in blooming. And, uh, you know, you're making quite a mess there. Um, have you ever, well, have you ever rejected someone because of their fa- I, facial mm, difference or... I don't. I don't. Now, interesting, I remember the first time a kid asked in uh, a middle school um, if Marlena uh, had looked like you, would you have married her? Good question. And I was like, whoops. This is and your, your I, wife who's, yeah, who's good looking? Who's very attractive, yeah. yeah. You can check it out. See <laughs> it on the website, davidroach.com. And... Um, and, and I didn't know how to answer that. And I remember there was a point at which, um, after I quit drinking, I remember I felt like in my relationships with women, I was just like reacting to women, and I wanted to figure out who I wanted. Um, so uh, I started writing down all the qualities, very explicit. Okay, well, we can't go into all the explicit stuff. And I realized I was describing, among other things, someone who was quite attractive. And I thought, oh, I can't do this because I can't, you know, like, who am I? You know, I'm a hypocrite. And then I realized, so I just stopped the list and I thought about it for about a week and I realized it wasn't that I needed somebody attractive. I needed somebody who was not obsessed with her appearance. That I could not, I did not want to be around someone who was like feeling so bad about herself, her weight, or whatever kind of thing. That so maybe that makes me a hypocrite too, mm-hmm. because everybody's obsessed to some degree. But um, that was really uh, who I was looking for. Mm. Um, but now, I think that when I first met Marlena, that I did not have enough. Self-regard, I did not fully love myself, and so because of that, I don't think I would have loved Marlena if she were disfigured like me. Mm. So it took some time, years, 
before I got to that place, and I'll give Marlene credit and gratitude for giving me the love and for seeing who I was uh, to bring me to that place where um, I, I, it would not be a problem now, no, not at all. Mm. Although, I, I, you know, like I say, people have to get used to my face. I have to get used to other people's faces, too. Mm. You, know, so. you have a very expressive face. And um, it it makes me think that perhaps the most difficult thing of all for people who are disfigured, you know, by injury or something, uh-huh. it would be to lose the ability to ex- to express themselves. Mm. Not so much the loss of beauty, you know, as the loss of expression. Well, I have friends with Mobius syndrome. That involves paralysis of the facial nerves. Mm. Not just facial, trigeminal and, you know hypoglossal, whatever, then I forget all the cranial nerves, so that their faces are totally rigid, uh, except they can lose their eyes. Uh, and so often that mouth will drop open, tongue hang out, and, uh, and, and that is very difficult for them. Um, uh, you know, because it seems, you know, like y- y- you can feel like they're not reacting to me. They're, you know, when you don't get that kickback of a, a facial expression, then uh, it's difficult. Hmm. I remember reading an article um, some years back about a man, I believe he was from Guatemala, a villager, a poor villager who was brought to the U.S. by some charitable organization uh, to have reconstructive surgery. I think he had... Um, whatever the technical term is for the elephant man's disease. Uh, so he had a severe deformity. He was brought to the U.S. for surgery, and they removed this large lopsided growth. And afterwards, his comment really struck me. He said, I don't know. I miss my old face. <laughs> I, yeah, I, you know, he felt that one with himself. Hmm. You know, I don't think I could give up my face now. So if they had some surgery that would make you look totally average, would you well, say not that? average. I don't look <laughs> average. I don't want to look like you. God, <laughs> geez, Robert. You're just like an average guy. No, actually, he's very handsome, folks. Um, <laughs> would, I, yeah, would I do that? Okay, well, you, let's you not know, say average. Make say you a no. movie star, yeah. Well, it's somewhere in between, I'd say. Um would I do that? I used to say no. And, of course, I wouldn't give up my face. And I would never give up what I learned, you know, if I had to do that. But, you know, now that I think about it, I'd like to try it. I, you know, i just like to have the experience to see what it's like. There's part of me, I just turned 65, you know. I feel like, okay, that's it. I'm done being disfigured. I've done that. It's through now. And um, I'd rather not deal with it so much anymore, so... Um, I wanted to read a little excerpt here from the foreword to your book uh, by the writer Anne Lamott. A lot of our listeners will recognize her. She says, um, The stuff he talks about is such subversive material, so contrary to everything society leads us to believe, that if you look good, you'll be happy and have it all together, and then you'll be successful, and nothing will go wrong, and you won't have to die, and the rot won't get in. (laughs) I love Annie. I just love her. (laughs) You know, she just hit, you know, that forward is so sweet. It's just like right on the sweet spot. It's great. And she hits on something there, that the fear of um, not being beautiful or the obsession with being beautiful 
doesn't just have to do with a sense of being maybe imperfect or flawed inside, but also a fear of death, maybe? You can keep yourself looking youthful that somehow you can deny the inevitable. <laughs> At age uh, 65, I think I have to agree with you about it. Yeah. Um, we talked earlier about how you elicit from people a variety of reactions, some of which are pretty awkward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, would, what would be your advice to people who have friends, relatives, or, or just who happen to meet people who have, you know, facial differences, disfigurations, things like that? What, what is the, the right way to be? Well, I'd say the right way is to come from your heart. But if you want a tip, I would say eye contact, and if you have it in you, smile. You know, we want the same kind of things that you want, okay? No surprise. Thank you for asking. In the uh, the copy of the book that you gave me, you wrote an inscription. It says, Robert, good for you. Uh-huh. What's that phrase mean to you, good for you? There were words that were spoken to me my, by my friend David Kleinberg as he was uh, in the last week of his life. And... Uh, I had told him that I I had agreed to stay visiting him in his presence for uh, the next week instead of going back to San Francisco. We were in L.A. and um, he was dying of AIDS. Uh, dying of AIDS, and uh, I after uh, after uh, you know I well it's a longer story and it's really worth reading, but. Um, that uh, I had agreed to be with him in the last days of his life. And uh, he took my hand, and he kissed it, and he put it on his heart, and he said, good for you. And, uh, it, you know, I remember that from being around people who were dying, you know, his, the last months of his life, all that he cared about was love, you know? That's all that he cared about, you know? And... uh so that was a great lesson. That was a great lesson. That was a life-changing time for me to be with him. And uh, so I say that's one of the prayers of the Church of 80% Sincerity. Good for you. So I, 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 I mean, it's used by many people, but I sort of like to use it. Well, David, good for you and good for me. Thank you. And you can learn more about David Roach, his writing and performances, at his website, davidroach.com. Roach is spelled R-O-C-H-E. This is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, And today's subject is living with disfigurement. Actually, facial differences is the more acceptable term these days. My next guest is Gina Butchen, who works with people whose faces have been touched by birth defects, injury, and illness. She herself grew up with a prominent birth defect, a cleft palate, before having reconstructive surgery later in life. Here's her description of her appearance before the surgery. My nose was flat to my lip. It was not lifted off of my face at all. So that piece that you have that's in the middle between your two nostrils did not exist. Uh-huh. So my nose was completely flat. My lip was open so you could see as an infant, as a newborn, that was completely wide open. No, so you couldn't suck. I couldn't um, drink out of a bottle. There's no suction because there's no lip, and the roof of your mouth essentially isn't there. So it's completely open to your nasal passage. Um, Speech-wise, you sound completely 
It's undetectable. So did you have it repaired? Is that what happened? I did not get my repairs done until I was in my late 30s. So I have a brand new face and a brand new voice. So I love my surgeon. I say that he actually helped me find my voice. So you grew up with one look, um, and and that's changed um, in your 30s uh, due to surgery. Yes, completely. Did you feel like when you were growing up, did you feel like you were ugly? Looking back... You know, I think I did grow up thinking I was ugly at some level, but I personally don't think I thought that any more than any other adolescent girl. I just had a different reason. So I was teased growing up, but so was the child who was fat, and so was the child who had a lisp, and so was the child who had glasses or any other, you know, kids are cruel. They'll pick on you for anything. And on top of that, I was meek. So I think I invited a little bit more of it as well. It, you know, it's a rough world out there, and it's the survival of the fittest. But I grew up having a very happy, healthy life. I know I didn't date a lot, but again, I was shy. I was married before I ever got my face fixed. Married and had two children. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I always joke, did it stop me from becoming a supermodel? Well, of course it did, but no more the fact that I'm only 5'3". And by the way, from what I hear, being a supermodel isn't necessarily so great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, starvation and other things come along with that, you know? Yeah, that doesn't sound fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, you don't sound like you lack for confidence uh, now at all. Not now. Oh. It came later. I always say I'm, I was a late bloomer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What was it like then to get, I think you said, a new face? It was a whole new face, yes. So after I was married, so I got my soft palate fixed before I met my husband, but that was it. After I met him and after my second child, I went back and said, okay, I'm ready for more, because my surgeon wanted to do everything in the first surgery, and I wasn't ready for that. Um, So I went back and said, okay, what can we do? And he literally rebuilt my face. Inside my nose, we did a rhinoplasty, which is, you know, the out, that's what you hear, like, stereotypical of a nose job. Yeah. A rhinoplasty. He did a septoplasty, which was to correct a severely deviated septum and all of the internal problems from my nose having been crooked and flat and all of that stuff. And he also implanted alloderm, which um, I later found out was cadaver tissue and really wish I wouldn't have learned that. Uh, um, he implanted alloderm in my top lip mm-hmm. because... Obviously, when you're born with a cleft, because it didn't form, there's tissue missing. You can't get it from, it's just not there. So he had to create my top lip, and then he sanded. You have scars on your lip from where they closed the cleft lip. He sanded the scars off. Now, now you had come to a place before getting the surgery where you were, you were okay with your face, though. Yeah, I was. I was. I didn't think there was anything they could do. It wasn't like I thought there was something big. My whole life I just accepted, well, that's who I am. That's what I look like. And people told me, and I've experienced this myself, that after a while they didn't see my scars anymore. After a while they didn't see that my nose was flat or too big for my face or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So I, did, I came to a place where I believe people really didn't see it and they just knew who I was on the inside, and that came through. Why did you want to have the surgery? You know, I don't, nothing happened in my life. It wasn't like I, there was some event that caused me. It, I don't know. It was almost some, you know, divine intervention or something that said, yeah, now's the time for you. Well, what's it like then to get a new face? It was amazing. 
this person that I am now, this person who goes to conferences and speaks in front of rooms full of people, didn't exist 10 years ago. I, I was always relatively confident. I went to college. I was a broadcast major. You know, I, I did the things that people do, but I was very, very shy. And part of that was, I think, because people couldn't understand my voice which was probably more important than looking at my face. I think once my voice got better, I got more confident. The whole new face, yeah, it created a different world for me. We live in a vain society, whether I want to admit it or not, we do. And it is fantastic. I always liked myself inside. It's amazing to like yourself inside and out. Well, you know, um, you know there's a lot of um, fiction and fable and folklore all about this, that beauty is really on the inside. It's... <laughs> It's, uh, you know, that, that looks don't really count. But, you know, there's a lot of hypocrisy in those stories, too, because usually uh, the frog does become the handsome prince. Do you think it's really true that looks don't really matter? No, I think they do matter. That's the problem. I mean, I'm not happy about it, but it's true. It's a vain society. Now, I had a hap- having said that, I had a happy, healthy, in my opinion, normal life even though I wasn't classically beautiful growing up. So they matter, but I think they matter. The depth of how that affects you is up to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you love yourself and you're confident and you know and you're well-rounded, and maybe you're not classically beautiful, people are going to love you. My friend David, I love him. I think he is the most beautiful soul I've ever met in my life, and I don't see how different he looks. But the first time I met him, it scared me a little. I was taken aback. It took my breath away. David Roach, who uh, I interviewed on this show. <laughs> and he is, he is an amazing human being. So it's, you know, it's different sides of the same coin. Mm. I'd love to tell you looks don't matter. They matter. But have, for me, it, my inside mattered more. Have you talked to people who, um, who by conventional standards, are beautiful uh, and, uh, you know, gotten an insight uh, into what it's like to be them? Um, I have a girlfriend who has done modeling, so I guess by our standards that would, you know, constitute being, you know, classically beautiful. At least the world thinks she is. And um, I think they have the exact same problems as anybody else. They're, I mean, she in particular was very insecure. That's why I laughed earlier when you said about the supermodel and starving yourself and She's more insecure than I ever was. And she, by all standards, is beautiful. But I, my opinion, don't think she loves herself on the inside. She doesn't think she's smart. She doesn't think she has something to offer the world. I was thinking that um, at least some people who are judged to be beautiful and then treated as such may get the message that (laughs) they damn well better stay that way forever or... (laughs) I haven't experienced that, but I bet that is true. <laughs> Where I have nothing else to offer, all I have is this. Yeah. So, yeah, I better stay that way. Yeah, I can see that. What do you think um, when you um, see stories like, say, Michael Jackson, um, a person who started out, I would say, and a lot of people would say, pretty good looking, mm-hmm. and, and then elected to, to constantly change his face, not because he was in any way disfigured by you know, standard definitions, you know, I don't know because I know people who said things to me as I was continuing to get my surgeries and my, you know, you'd get a repair done and your face settles and they have to tweak it a little and they would 
jokingly tease me, well, don't turn into Michael. Uh-huh. Don't keep doing that. And I, I guess I don't know how I feel about elective surgeries. Clearly, he had a problem. You don't keep doing something and then keep doing it till it, you know, you have an appendage practically fall off your face. But I don't know. I have lots of girlfriends. I live in, um, you know, an area of the country that, you know, is probably one of the most well-known for plastic surgery. <laughs> ah. So I would imagine I know a lot of people who have, uh, you know, parts and pieces replaced and listed and, you know. So I don't, I don't know how I feel about that because surgery is scary and doing it electively is even more scary. Something can go wrong. I don't know why you would do that, but I'd imagine people have things about themselves they want to fix. Yeah. But I would make the argument that if they're fixing something on the outside, there's a deeper problem. Well, you grew, you grew up, as you said, with a, the cleft palate and your face looking different from the other kids you knew. Mm-hmm. Um, you must have some insights then as to, to how parents um, can help kids in that situation. Yeah, I have funny stories about it, too, of my experiences. I do. Actually, at conferences, there have been heated debates twice now that I've been sort of uh, just now I'm getting used to it, but shocked by about parents asking me and other people in the same situation I am about whether they should even get the corrective procedures for their child and because they love their child the way their child looks now. And I'm telling you, without exception, people born adults, born at the facial difference will sit there and look at the parent like they're crazy and say, if you have the insurance, if you have the money, this is not a financial concern, and you're asking from a purely emotional standpoint, it's, yes, get the surgeries done. This is a vain society that, you know, that science exists, get it done. Mm. Is that the way you feel? Yeah. My parents stopped, and I have, I harbor absolutely no resentment. They did what they did. They did the best they could with the knowledge they had at the time. But my answer has always been, do I wish I grew up with the face I have now? Of course I do. Uh, I had a great life, don't get me wrong, but yeah, uh, <laughs> it would have been better. But it was great. I have no complaints, no regrets, but come on. So so you say parents fall in love with the face that their child has, so they have to let go of that. But also putting a child through the pain of repeated surgeries must be a tough decision. It is, and my girlfriend, so I have a friend who I do a lot of charity work with, her daughter, who is four, is the one who was born at the bilateral or unilateral cleft, and so she and I have gotten into that conversation a few times, because she loves her daughter's face, and that's the face she knows, and there's risks involved with surgery. And I, as a parent myself, I understand where she's coming from, but obviously can relate to her daughter. So much more, and that's a daughter who's the middle of three children, her older sibling and her younger sibling not having it. Right. And I just look at her like emotionally, the risks of surgery are so minimal. And as a child, you bounce back the um, that they call the P flap that I had done to repair my soft palate is incredibly painful as an adult, but not so painful as a child. And you can equate it to like a tonsillectomy. Much mm. harder on an adult. Mm. Same idea. So if her, that child's voice is hypernasal, and I don't know if it is, the P flap as a young child would she'd recover and bounce back much faster than if you did it in your thirties. Like mm. mm. Well, I've, I've got a maybe what might be a, a little bit of a weird question, but um, within any group that that uh, starts banding together uh, because they have something in common. 
after a certain amount of time, subdivisions start to, to form, I've noticed. So, for, for instance, you, you know a group of people who have various kinds of facial difference from uh, birth defects, if I can use that term, to injuries, people with really, really severe facial differences, people with maybe less noticeable ones. Um, are, there, are there kind of subgroups, you know, within the world of facial difference? I don't, cliques definitely form. Cliques, yeah, that's, that's the word. They get together. Yeah. They do, and um, they're sort of, and they're self-policing, too. It's very interesting, but, yeah, there's, I know the ones I've been at, those of us who tend to look at the glass half full definitely seem to gravitate to one another. Mm-hmm. Turn off the noise of the people who aren't willing or aren't able to actually try to see that things could be better. Mm. And they tend to gravitate together. So I think cliques do form, and also the different type of uh, difference you have. Mm-hmm. People do that. I know I've noticed that. I try to, you know, mingle yeah. and make the rounds. But um, because I'm there for a different reason, I'm there speaking as opposed to the people who are attending. But I've noticed that, like, people, it's even the same type of difference because they have something in common. They tend to huddle together. Yeah. And it's a shame because they actually have a lot to share amongst them. And we do things at the conferences to try to get them to do that. But I think that's true in any type of group. Any, you know, you throw a group of people together and they're going to sort of, you know, you're going to gravitate to the people who are more like you. Well, what about the fact that you're one of the haves now, not not one of the have-nots? You had surgery, you you get to be look pretty and all of that, and some people aren't there. Maybe they won't ever get there. Is there resentment about that? I Yes, I actually got one. I, it's the same person who's been at almost every conference I go to, and uh he yells it like he's kind of not nice to me. <laughs> he's like, "Why are you here?" And uh-huh. every time I see him, I'm like, "Well, I was born with a bilateral." Like I have to tell him, he doesn't believe me that you know I used to be a have not, as you put it. You know, he's and he's down. He's almost he's mean. He's surly. <laughs> wow. He's like this curmudgeon. I'm like, oh, why are you like that? But I don't know if there's resentment. I think parents seem to be instead of resentment, it's more. Um, the only word that comes to mind is awe, and that isn't what I mean. I think it's hope yeah. for their child. They see me and they think, oh, that really? It can look that good. Uh-huh. You know, I'm like, it can. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you, Gina. You're very welcome. This is the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Robert Polly. Well, we heard how David Roach learned to live with the face he was dealt and how Gina Butchin got a brand new face in midlife. Next, a person who lost her face, then got it back. Louise Ashby was a 22-year-old model and actress on the verge of a Hollywood career. She'd just moved from London to L.A. when she was in a serious car accident. Recovering in the hospital, she knew something was very wrong when visitors wouldn't look at her and refused to give her a mirror. When she finally got a glimpse of herself in a hospital bathroom, here's what she saw. My face was swollen to the size of a watermelon. Um, and very, very bruised, and my left eye was shut, um, uh, sealed shut. I couldn't open my left eye. My features were really small because of the swell. I mean, I just didn't... It wasn't me. It was not me. It was something you would see in a horror movie. I don't know how to explain it. It just uh, wasn't what I ever imagined that I would see looking back at me as myself. Mm. 
did it feel as though it was a, an imposter or a mask or something? The weird thing was that when I looked at myself, I still felt the same on the inside. It was still me on the inside, even though I didn't recognize who it was on the outside. And it was one of those things that you just realized that, you know, this is our housing and it's what's on the inside that matters. Um, I didn't feel that it was a mask or an imposter. I didn't really, it was just like a monster. But I did realize at that point that I was going to need to build a mask um, mm. to kind of get through it. Mm. Cover. I didn't want, it was, I didn't want anybody to see what I was seeing. You then embarked on a long course of, of reconstructive surgery. Yes, I did. To date, I've had um, 22 surgeries. Um, and initially, and that took 10 years, I was looking for doctors to, to, to do the reconstruction, but the first four that I saw said, there's nothing we can do. This is the worst case we've ever seen. So it took uh, roughly 10 years and many surgeries, and you ended up getting a, a face that looked pretty much like you did before the accident, or what you would have looked like 10 years down the road if you hadn't had the accident? I mean, apparently. To me, I still see all the imperfections, but I think we do as individuals anyway. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I, if I look back, I really, you know, I mean, I look nothing like I did that first day that I had that I saw myself in the mirror. I pretty much looked the same. Yeah. Uh, you were um, gorgeous before the accident. I mean, I was told I was gorgeous. I don't know if I thought I was gorgeous, <laughs> but I was, you know, and apparently leading lady and modeling material. But I don't know if I saw myself like that. But and after the surgeries were done, um, people now think of you as quite lovely as well. That's what I'm told. <laughs> no, I don't want you to say it yourself. <laughs> no, I'm super stunning. <laughs> I'm, I'm apparently, uh, yeah. But uh, in between, during this 10 years, what, what did you look like as this transformation took place? Um, well, I wore wigs. I had an eye patch. Um, I've got 250 metal bolts and plates holding my head together. So I looked um, you know what, I, I had to address what I didn't like about myself and what my imperfections were as a person. So once I had done that, then what I was exuding from the inside still it seemed to attract lots of people. So I don't know how I really looked, but it was what was on the inside that was attracting people to me anyway. I mean, it's very bizarre seeing your face go through a metamorphosis like this. Um, I covered everything up, so... You hid to some, some extent. Uh, yeah, I did. Well, in your story, a couple of things really stand out. You, you were quite young. Um, you were someone who, because you were in show business... Because you were a model, you were trading in your looks. Yeah. And for this to happen at that moment, um, I, I would think intensifies everything that anybody would experience in this case. Oh, well, I met with the casting director at HBO a couple of days before the accident. And we had such a great meeting. And she said, oh, you're leading lady material. Um, 
you're gorgeous, we're going to get you so much work. And then after the accident, she was called into a deposition and she said, oh, well, she might as well kiss that career goodbye. There's no way she'll ever work again. I mean, look at her. You know, so whereas originally I was hoping to get work as a leading lady, then because of who I am and, you know, my zest for life or whatever it is, I was asking my agent to set me up on uh, for castings for horror movies and um, and those kind of things. And I didn't, I wasn't joking. I just wanted to work. You're serious? That, yeah, absolutely. And I said, I would say to my agent, look, why can't you just get me parts in horror films? So for you, work was more important than than looks. When you lose your looks, then you realize what's really important in your life. You know. Yeah. Uh, whereas I had hidden so much of uh, feelings that I felt or things that I'd been through on um, on my appearance, suddenly I wasn't in a position to do that. Um, so yeah. Mm. So what's I just wanted to be, and also I think when you're going through. Thing as challenging as that or anything else in your life, it's really important to have something to focus on to keep you alive. Mm-hmm. So my whole, um, what kept me going was, and what I would say to doctors was, you have to fix me, I'm an actress. And then the funniest thing was when I was socially acceptable, whatever that's supposed to mean, and I started, you know, and I got work as an actress again, um, I was so uncomfortable with the lights being on the left side and all that kind of thing that I just suddenly felt, you know what, this isn't fulfilling me like I thought it would. But what it did do was that dream got me from A to B in my, you know, biggest challenge of all, which was recreating my life. So now... I mean, after the the surgeries had uh, made a lot of progress, you got a pretty nice face back. How how do you relate to your face now? Uh, a lot of us think of our face as really embodying our, our our person, you know. But you went through a position of having um, had the face be something totally separate from who you were inside. Uh, I mean, you know, I forget everything that I went through at uh, times. Uh if that makes sense. Um, although I live with pain every day, that's my reminder. Uh, and so, you know, as human beings, we adjust, if we want to, so quickly that um, it's just become who I am. Um, I forget what it's like to have the face that I had before the accident. So this is just who I am. That's I relate to it as, you know, as me. It's me, it's my journey. The scar above my eye makes me who I am. You know, that's my, it's my gift, I guess. Mm. You had a, a lot of very expensive surgeries. A million dollars, yeah. A million dollars worth. Who, who paid for that? I did. You, oh, you had that kind of money? No, no, I didn't. It was my settlement. The insurance settlement uh, from the car accident covered paid, yeah. the surgeries. Surgeries, yeah. So these days, um, am I right in thinking that you work with people who have facial disfigurement and um, uh, you spend time working 
in that world of yes, I do. Yeah. And so you must meet people who really don't have the money or for whom, you know, even money wouldn't buy uh the kind of successful reconstructive surgery that you had, you know, who yeah. for whom it's medically impossible. Yeah, that's very true. And uh I think that I mean, I feel so so unbelievably lucky that I was in a position where I could have it fixed because the majority of people don't, you know. They suddenly have to live with that. And one of the things I experienced when going through this was how people would look at me. I mean, I was asked to leave public places because my appearance was disturbing customers. It was so disgusting how I was treated. Really? Yeah. And so the reason I, you know, I have to look, because I was in a position where I was able to get, you know, fixed, I feel that it's my my job to use that position and use that to to help other people and to put the awareness out there. Do you ever feel guilty when you're with them? I feel sad that I'm... Maybe it is guilt. Maybe it is guilt. I mean, I don't think we can feel... I don't know. I just... You know, the the ironic thing is that my grandmother was in a car accident with my father 30 years before mine. And she went through the windscreen and her arm came off and her face was ripped off and she was eight months pregnant. And so growing up... I was always told, you have to wear a seatbelt. Look, Grandma's got no arm. And, you know, her face was, I mean, she had reconstructive surgery, and she was awarded £6,000, which is $10,000. Nothing. Nothing. And she couldn't have the surgery that I had. Now, she made me feel guilty. Mm. But when I first went back to England after the accident, and the first thing I wanted to do was go and see her, and... Um, find out, you know, and show her that she wasn't alone in what she was going through. And I was taken into an... I went into her bedroom with her, and I took off my wig and my eye patch, and and she let me feel her scars and lumps and bumps in her head, and I let her feel mine. And then I felt guilty. Mm. Then I felt, you know, why did... You know, it's... Because she was so bitter about what she'd been through that um, she kind of she looked at me and she goes oh well you're lucky aren't you you get to have it fixed kind of thing and uh, you know that was that was hard but I also said to her yeah but I understand your pain and I understand why you feel the way you do today you know, it's just, I think people can be so judgmental and cruel and um, should really think about, you know, the, what the person's story might be before you judge. Uh, I'm curious to know, um, you having been at least back in your 20s, part of that industry that promotes, a, a, you know, a certain kind of classical beauty, um, which inevitably is going to make a large number of people feel inadequate. Do you do you reflect on that part of your life or on that uh, on that industry? Um, 
No, not really, because I never saw myself as that. Uh-huh. I always, I always felt, you know, everyone's so quick to say who is beautiful and who is not beautiful, mm-hmm. but even sometimes the beautiful don't feel that they're beautiful. You know, I've got friends who are so gorgeous and so stunning, but inside they've got so many issues that they haven't dealt with that they feel ugly. So it's, um, and I, you know, I mean, unless you're super confident in who you are on the inside, you're not going to feel super confident on the outside. Mm. So it really depends on, and I think it also depends on how you're brought up, you know, how your parents judged you, how, how you were encouraged to feel about yourself. You know, when I hear that kids are, are looking at their weight, and going on diets at 11 years old and things like that, it, it's unbelievably worrying. But that's what's put out there in the magazines and the tabloids and everything. It's like, you need to look like this if you're going to be acceptable. But then, you know, I don't know if uh, they had something on TV last night. They had um, a photo shoot with all the plus-size models. And now plus-size is considered size 6. <laughs> I mean, it's um, do you like to hang out with beautiful people or do you like to hang out with people who are not conventionally beautiful? Well, I live in L.A., so everybody's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, do I like to hang out with conventionally beautiful? Uh, not if I'm with my boyfriend. <laughs> and I try to surround myself with as many... No, I'm not. That sounded really awful. Um <laughs> I don't really, I, I, I mean, I like to surround myself with people who've got a great sense of humor. Mm. I think that's the most important thing in life, is to have a great sense of humor. Mm. Be able to laugh at yourself. So, given your your story that we just talked about, having had this severe facial injury, years of um, reconstructive surgery, and becoming uh, aware as you have of what it's like to look different, what are you doing with that now? I've just set up a, a charity called the Louise Ashby Children's Fund, um, and I'm working on another book, and I am uh, developing a cosmetic line which will cover um, scars, disfigurements, to you know, obviously the best of its ability, uh, just to make kids and teenagers as well feel more confident about who they are at school, because I know how judgmental children are. Mm. Um, they can be really cruel. And, uh, you know, it's hard enough dealing with any kind of imperfection, let alone suddenly, you know, losing your face or if a kid is born with a birth defect, having to be judged at school for it. It's just... So anything we can do to make the kids feel better about who they are or feel more confident and com- comfortable and just know that, you know, we're all equal. Well, Louise, thanks for this time today. No, thank you, Robert. Louise Ashby is the author of The Magic of the Mask and is at work on a new book. And that's it for today's edition of the show. I'm Robert Polly, back next week.